Hello and welcome to Farewell. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. So I need to zoom out a bit and set the table for today's interview, which I think is great. As you know, if you regularly listen to the show or are longtime fans of The Growth Equation, have read Steve or Brad's books, you know that our general gist is we are in the business of trying to provide some sustainable, evidence-based, proven practices, tools, habits, things that can help you guys feel a little bit better, perform a little better on the things you care about most. So we are very much believers in improvement and betterment. But I also think it's important to recognize that there are limits to this type of thinking. And we don't always recognize those limits. There's an implicit promise in a lot of the messaging around wellness and health that you are the master of your own destiny, that every limit can be conquered. And that's just not true. Some problems can't be solved. And that is something that is not recognized enough in our current societal obsession with well-being and performance and self-improvement which is why I'm very happy to be speaking today with Kate Bowler. So Kate is a professor of religious history at Duke University, and she's an expert in these ideas about betterment and improvement because, believe it or not, and I didn't know this until I spoke to Kate or read her books, most of the promises of the wellness industry have deeply religious roots. They come from the American religious idea of the prosperity gospel. It's the idea that if you are a true believer in God, he will provide you with health, wealth, and happiness. And that is essentially how so many people approach their health these days. Instead of looking to God, they look to the right diet or the right workout or finding the right book or the right time management strategy to be healthy, happy, and wealthy. So Kate's perspective is informed by her scholarship, but it is also informed by her lived experience. When she was 35, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. As she says in the interview today, she went from being like, oh, there's a weird stomach pain to oh my gosh, you're 35 and you're going to die this year. So she is one of the people who is left out of so much of the messaging in the religious world and in the wellness world, the messaging that says anything can be overcome. But again, that's not true. Stage four cancer is one of those intractable problems that can't be solved by believing in God or by manifesting positive thoughts or by getting more sleep or by tracking your macros. Kate is now cancer-free thanks to immunotherapy, but she carries this perspective that I think is really important. It allows for the idea of growth and improvement and betterment, but it also maintains alongside all that striving a recognition that we are all less in control and far more delicate than we let ourselves know. And admitting that is liberating because it frees us from this immense pressure of always having to do more and feel good. This notion that Kate says we have to quote unquote earn our lives. And so this is a conversation about what it's like to live with that idea, how it might change or complicate or deepen the way we think about performance and well-being and ultimately make it more inclusive of people who are suffering or are sick or are living in great pain. And let me just say that despite all of that, this is not as heavy of a conversation as all that might make it sound. Kate is laugh out loud funny, which is unfortunate for you guys in some ways because my laugh sounds a little bit like Woody the Woodpecker, but great in other ways, because you're going to come away from this conversation smiling, and I hope having learned a lot. If you're looking to learn even more or hear even more from Kate, she has a new book coming out. It is called Have a Beautiful, Terrible Day, and it is a collection of meditations that she wrote about how to get through our days, which can be both beautiful and also terrible. I also reference a couple of her other 
best-selling books in here. One is her memoir, No Cure for Being Human, and Other Truths I Need to Hear, and the other is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. She also has a podcast called Everything Happens. But for right now, you can hear her on this podcast. Here's my conversation with Kate Bowler. I'm very excited about this discussion because I think a lot of what you discuss in your books is is provides a perspective that the the well the health and wellness world needs. I want to start with like the prosperity gospel, sure, because I think that will set a nice context for what we will ultimately get into. So, what is the prosperity gospel? Where did it come from, and how did it like how does it sort of undergird today's self help movement? Well, the prosperity gospel is the idea that God wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and that you have the ability inside of you right now to make all of your dreams come true if you can only figure out how to sort of work the machinery of your mind. And most of these beliefs are come from deeply held American spiritual, theological, and philosophical traditions that pop up about 150 years ago, when Americans are really trying to figure out what makes them Americans. And they decide, you know, by at least the 1850s, that it's definitely individualism. <laughs> They're like, what are you? I am self-made. Who do you need? No one. Uh, so a lot of the glamour around what makes um, someone uh, be able to rely largely on themselves, um, and then what are the qualities uh, of that self-made American. And by the late 19th century, a lot of different groups are experimenting with different beliefs of what then can make some people rise to the top and some people fall all the way down. And this is really accelerated by the uh, rapid rise of American cities is because nothing makes people compare themselves with others more than proximity. And so these little cheap paperbacks like dime novels pop up everywhere. Um, and those are the very first self-help manuals. They're the things that say like six steps to blah, 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 blah. They are, you might imagine, like the early gym manuals, the early gym wall slogans. Everything you want is within your grasp. Um, but these early beliefs uh really become kind of a seedbed for all kinds of things. And so for it, um, for some groups, it becomes this philosophical tradition called new thought that really you can find one version or another of new thought in almost every single magazine. Um, actually, the very first magazine that popularized it was Good Housekeeping. And it was like, hey, what makes... Um, what makes some people happy and successful? And the answer is if you harness positive thought in a particular direction that what you think you can achieve, you can. And this is really an early form of manifesting. And they did. So there can be more or less religious versions of it. They might talk more about the divine force and alignment. But all of this is kind of going into the water of how Americans begin to think about what inspires them, what makes them better than others, and what makes them rely almost exclusively on themselves. And that very much feels like to me, I mean, the thing, the idea of you can conquer your limits, you control your destiny, you can uh, will yourself to your dreams, you can bootstrap. I mean, that is very much the bedrock, not only of self-help, but I feel like health and wellness in a lot of ways. I mean, Absolutely. Do, you, do you see it as sort of like its own spirituality? 
I mean, really, when I look around, I think most motivational language is really built on these religious and philosophical foundations. And what they're almost always saying is um, it relies on like a, a couple different beliefs. One, it usually posits some kind of mind-body dualism that like your body's doing stuff great for you, meat suit. But what's most important is this will and this uh, kind of spiritual harnessing that you have to do in order to um, overcome what other people can't. So mind-body dualism. Um, the other one is kind of often based on a, a theory of alignment. And lots of times that means you, you're going to get a lot of energy language. This is why manifesting or vibes. Good God, this world of vibes. Like when I give a lecture, one of my only takeaways is like, hey, please don't buy good vibes shirts anymore for yourself or your grandchildren. Um, but this vibrational language is the idea that there are different frequencies and that's what, and so God is or ultimate power is at the highest frequency. And your job is to raise your energy level. And these kind of energy tiers is, I mean, it's a, it's a wildly American religious paradigm. But I think people don't think they're being religious when they say good vibes, but it's an, it's, it's an, it's an entirely religious concept. That's interesting. Can you I say would, more about that? Because I think people would be surprised to hear that. So this is all kind of an extension of this early um, new thought, right? New mm -hmm. thought being mm -hmm. the idea that you can harness your thought into creating reality. And so in that version, uh, good thoughts create good realities and bad thoughts create by extension, bad realities. And all of these I think of as kind of boomerang theologies that what you what you put out will come back to you like American karma. And so uh, good vibes is part of the belief that you are in every version creating reality with your thought, your disposition, your emotion, your attitude, um, which like is just wonderfully unproven. <laughs> I mean, it's, un it's unproven. It's such a I mean, I just, it's exciting how many forms of, you know, um, argumentation could disprove the idea that we're going around um, vibrationally creating our realities, but we're really into it um, in part because, and I think this is the third stream, and it, it follows from the idea that what's most important to us is these sort of spiritual attitudes is um, by the time we get to World War II and after, therapeutic language really takes over American culture. And so we start to not just say, I'm arguing that. We start to say, I feel that. And so if you ask people what's most important about them or what makes them really them, they'll often just think that they are a set of emotional states and they just have to go around managing it. So one reason why people then get into mindfulness is they feel like, or a lot of different wellness practices, is that the ultimate person is a well-balanced and emotionally managed person. And this can really, this can kind of go in a neo-Buddhist direction. I mean, if we're talking dudes, dude religion is like, you know, neo-Stoicism. So the idea that life mm -hmm. is painful and you have to manage it with this kind of courageous impassivity. Some version of good vibes. Uh, or some kind of neo-Buddhist version. But all of them are largely built on the idea that your emotions are the most important thing about you or that yeah. you shouldn't really have them, comma, men, period. Dude religion is a great phrase. That's the name of my band, actually. Um, <laughs> and your shirt just says, it is me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good vibes only on the back. So what? what is, like, what's wrong with that? Where does that fall short? Yeah. Well, 
for all those of us who struggle, for all those of us who aren't the person to get back up. I mean, this is part of what makes it such a convenient explanation when things are going really well. And the reason why I think it's so attractive is we all want to feel like there are things within our control that we can work on. So we kind of get stuck in this endless progress mindset. Mm -hmm. But most of us will have long seasons of difficulty. Um, the number of Americans who struggle with depression and anxiety is so incredibly high, and that's not because they're failures in some fundamental way. There's so many biological, chemical, social, contextual reasons why people really struggle. It has very little to do with how hard they're trying to have a great attitude. And then a lot of us, I mean, get sick. I was diagnosed with stage four cancer when I was 35, and I spent about four years in active treatment. And most of the time I was, I really felt like I was a failure to to suffer with something I couldn't control in a culture that is constantly trying to explain the suffering of others. So it can really be an oppressive and like overly convenient way of pointing at somebody else when the truth is we all struggle, we're all barely holding our lives together, and we're frankly a lot more delicate than we pretend to be. And which of these, because you, you, before your cancer diagnosis, you were writing a, um, a book on the, on the prosperity gospel. And so I think you were very eyes wide open about a lot of these things. So I'm curious, I'm curious which of these things you, sub, like which of them you subscribe to and which of them that you felt like were most disrupted when you were diagnosed with cancer? Yeah. Well, I mean, I am such a type A overachiever that for so long, almost everything that I set out to do and I was trying to get a PhD and I was trying to have the glories of a million graduate students who came to listen to me in my tower with gargoyles. Like I had a full plan of being very fancy and, and much of that was predicated on pretty middle-class confidence in the power of my own abilities supplemented with like a little bit of bonus bad Christian thought, which was that wasn't maybe I was really pretty good all along, hadn't really done that much to deserve, you know, spending most of my 30s trying not to die. And mm -hmm. so I I really had to question whether I thought my life was something I was earning or whether it was something I thought I deserved. And pretty quickly I realized that those are really that they were really convenient and way too simplistic to understand why some people live and some people don't, why some people get their lucky break and other people don't. And I, once I could give up on the idea of deserving, then I could really start to see with more compassion and more honesty, the suffering of others. And, and, and mostly just that I was going to have to struggle a lot longer than I wanted to. And I think that's one of the trickiest things of any tragedy is you're always trying to figure out, like, do I have any control in this at all? And the truth is you kind of only have like a little tiny window, but you have to like, but that tiny window is yours. And so in my case, I had to aggressively fight for 
medical treatment. I had to try to get my family out of the possibility of medical bankruptcy. Like there was really dramatic stuff that required me to really try, but the rest of it was totally out of my control. So how do you then like kind of figure out that tiny little window of like, what is yours to do? And I think that's, if we can learn how to talk about that more honestly, I think we can escape a lot of the everything is possible bullshit and get Mm -hmm. to the like refined wisdom of agency. Mm. So let's talk about that. Cause I think, I think that's, I think that's really informative for thinking about how those of us in all these various pseudo spiritualities or not even pseudo, just spiritualities can redirect our energy or orient ourselves towards something a little bit more useful and not, not harmful, I guess is, is maybe the way of thinking of it. Um, so how do we figure out what what small part we can control? Well, I mean, so this is just a silly idea, but like one thing I always get my students to do is in this class about the history of the prosperity gospel, I ask them to look around for other prosperity gospels in their life. So, um, and sometimes they come up with really amazing ones like the prosperity gospel of Disney or the prosperity <laughs> gospel of... Um, What's that wonderful gym that's on every corner? CrossFit? Uh, uh, Soul Cycle? <laughs> no, those are the those those Equinox? are the every <laughs> <laughs> it was um Planet Fitness. That's what it was. Oh, okay. okay. Um and uh oh, but yeah, no, but of Peloton, of Soul Cycle. I mean, those have yeah. pretty aggressive prosperity gospels, totally. But even the ones that say, um, like fitness is within everyone's control, like very democratized attempts. It's a really fun thing to say, what am I looking for when I'm looking for something that is promising too much? And I get them to look for four themes. I look mm. get them to look for the things I look for in the prosperity gospel, a gospel, an account of faith, health, wealth, and victory. So faith, that's the belief that whatever you, in their version, faith is a spiritual power you can harness to overcome all circumstances. So I get them to look for that kind of quality. I get them to look for an account of wealth. Is this promising a moreness that maybe we're not actually promised in our lives? (laughs) I get them to look for health. Is there an, like an aggressive sense that like there's going to be a show and tell with your own body. And I get them to look for victory, which is a, a feeling. It took me a bit, in my research to try to like narrow this down, but it's the sense that every single obstacle can be overcome. It's a kind of setting of a horizon that's above what is, is average and goes into the realm of, you know, the impossible. And if you're looking for faith, health, wealth, and victory and a very, um, that, and, and just ask yourself in any of these versions, uh, do they assume that any single person, no matter what their circumstances, could conquer. And when you think mm-hmm. about the particularity of that, you just you really can see the slippery way that that breaks down. Really, a person with you know chronic fatigue syndrome who's trying to take care of their it's is you know et cetera et cetera. So when you contextualize what people are promising, then I think you can get down to a like a much narrower, but a kind of much more interesting place is. Mm-hmm. In light of these promises, and in light of the the single window of a human day in a human life, what is possible today? And I happen to think some pretty amazing things are possible, even in difficult circumstances. But just to like refine it down to that pure gold, I think mm-hmm. is is tricky work. 
The other thing that jumps out to me that's like a, a parallel here is I, I feel like there are so many ways in which I was talking to someone about this and the idea that so many people who perform their religion and like I'm, I'm using Christianity here, but you could pick any religion and sort of like performing the rituals of being a good Christian more so than actually practicing the values of Christianity. And I actually feel like health and wellness is very similar in that so much, so many people perform their health rather than con- like get concerned about actually being healthy. And so it's just interesting to me that there's this idea of performance yeah. that preempts the actual act of what should be under the performance. Totally. I mean, then we get in this cycle of show and tell in which you have to be, like in Christian language, you have to be the gospel. You have to be the good news. And most of us can really only do that for like two weeks until we like tweak our back or we're super grouchy at the person we love. Or Yeah. But finding finding a less like demonstrative way of telling the truth, I think gets us to a more vulnerable place, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is, I mean, like another way of talking about it is to say, like, how do we calibrate our hope? How do we get yeah. into that good granular place where you can hope for the right thing? You write so beautifully about how so many of the ideas that you grew up believing ran into this thing that just proved them complicated them all. I don't want to say prove them wrong necessarily, but ideas about, you know, we live in a just, we live in a just world and we live in a fair world and we can control, again, we can control our destiny. And one reaction to that could have been to lose your faith and belief, but you didn't. And so I'm curious how you would characterize how the texture of your belief or faith is different now on the other side of this understanding. So both my parents kind of became Christian later in life, which really helped skip a lot of the sort of aggressively bad Christian culture stuff that I saw. There was no need to rebel. It was already what I got. I was, I thought, you know, I'm really, I have a, I have a set of beliefs that I really, I really enjoy thinking about. I really enjoy interacting with. It's, it's why I, went to divinity school and I got a PhD in the history of religion. Like I've always loved these ideas and I've loved living inside of these ideas, but I did think, I mean, somewhere deep down that it was that my dreams for myself were always going to somehow be in alignment with having this kind of beautiful life. And that if I worked really, really, really hard that I could always outmaneuver the problems that came my way. But then the problems that came my way were harder earlier than I thought. Like by the time I was 28, I was having these really weird um, like arm weakness problems and I stopped being able to type and well, which sucks because that was my whole life and job. And so I found myself like voice dictating my dissertation or trying to, which like it was a time before good voice dictation, which is sometimes honestly, Clay, when I'm, you can even hear it when I talk to you, I'm like, Clay, comma. I could just like, I spent years trying to like manage disability and I was so frustrated because I always felt like I was like just about to get somewhere really good and then I got knocked down and then I would like fight like hell to get back up again and then I'd be there for a minute and it was so glorious and then I'd get knocked down. So I just had like disability, I had infertility for a really long time. I just wanted this stupid mushy baby and then like finally I stuck the landing and I had like... I legitimately had everything I wanted for nine months. And it was so good. 
<laughs> it was so good. And then it was so bad. It was like, it was like a landslide bad. Where I went from being like, wow, I wonder if there's something that's a weird stomach pain to, oh my gosh, you're 35 and you're going to die this year. And in that moment, the wild recalibration of being like, I really thought I could largely earn my life to, I have almost no control about what happens to me. What was any of this for? Thank you so much, God. This feels like kind of a ridiculous design flaw. <laughs> Thanks for your garbage world and these horrible, defective bodies. I hate you, which is largely my prayer life. <laughs> and I, but I guess what happened right after, I kind of just did two things at once. The first was it had to erase my whole like meritocracy. Like there was just no way I was going to earn it. And then what came after was a weird amount of love. It was just like love from other people who are helping rescue my family, like financially and like feeding us and being nice to us, even though they don't have to. <laughs> just so much other people helping. And then the rest was just like, I really felt loved, weirdly loved by God. And I felt that I was somehow worth loving, even though the medical system really made, because mm. I, I mean, I had like begged for care for such a long time. And then to get this diagnosis when it was like too late, I was like, are you, I felt truly worthless. Mm. So to feel kind of loved when I felt so worthless, that really kind of, that took that created this weird, I guess faith then didn't become a thing I was trying to earn. It felt like this weird, wonderful bubble wrap that was going to prevent me from believing all of the lies in the first place. Mm. And so when, you're, when the, your faith is is informed by that worth, yeah. as opposed to sort of dominion Winning. or... Yeah, exactly. I was going to say Winning, like, earning, yeah. trying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, still, was, and you know, I'm such yeah. a like earner trier. Well, that's, well, that's what I was going to ask is like something like, yeah. cause you talk in the book about how you were addicted as we all are to self rule, but yeah. now, and so on one hand, one side, you have this sort of dominion over self control over destiny, self rule. And then you get to a place where you, it, it's more informed by self-worth. How does that different? Like, how's the, how does that feel different? Or how does that orientation feel different to you? I yeah. want it, I want it to be like a lesson for people out there who are, who are coming at it from a place of a, a deficit of self-worth. Yeah. What does it feel like if you actually come at it from a place of, I am enough, but I'm also still going to do these things to yeah. try to improve, but it's not because I I'm not enough. It's because I just maybe want more and that can also be okay. Yeah. I think those are like really good distinctions, Clay, between like this fundamental thing that now can't be touched, which is that you are so lovely and worth loving. And that I guess it was so meaningful to me that it was when I was totally useless, like just stuck in the hospital forever, that I really did feel like the most loved. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when we can't try anymore, that's the, like the only time we can learn that lesson is that doing absolutely nothing at all, that we are like more precious to God and other people than we, than I'm, than I'm positive we have any imagination for. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's worth letting other people help us just to remind ourselves that people actually do want to love us in a way that embarrasses us and forces us to... <laughs> feel that way but I think the other bit is like I because I know that life is so hard 
and that so little is in our control, the very little that is in our control, I want that. I want that piece. I want it to be separate from what I deserve or what I'm worth, but I do love the ability to try. And so that became a big privilege. Like, you know, I I had like nine abdominal surgeries. I was so tired of being a patient. It was then really, really fun to do anything in the health and wellness space, like learning to be able to run again or to lift weights or whatever. It felt super empowering. Like it feels great. It feels great. As long as I just don't reconnect those two train engines again, where it's then back to what I'm worth. Maybe this is only a question of from that could be asked from somebody who didn't go through what you went through, but like, do you have to remind yourself of that? Or like, do you have ways of reminding yourself to not connect those two trains or is it so innate and inherent for you after what you've gone through? I kind of feel like I, when it comes to knowing in my inherent worth, I'm loved for no great reason, except that I am inherently lovable, those kinds of things. None of that has ever come naturally to me. And I usually have to create kind of an exoskeleton for reminding myself that stuff. And I, I kind of picture it like those, um, just let me be ridiculous for one second, but like, cause I'm a historian, but there's a second in the middle ages where they just forgot how to build tall buildings. They just completely forgot. And they, and then eventually they're like, all oh, right, uh, external scaffolding. So they started putting up these buttresses on the side of buildings, which look lovely, but it's really just so that they can have a second floor. And I, that's kind of how I think of my own experience of self-worth is like by myself, I can't be a very tall building. I need some flying buttresses to just like be on both sides. And for me, that is, uh, well, it's God. It's friends who know my absurdity and my best qualities. And it's little things I get to do to try every day that I, that, that can just be evidence of being creative and being myself in the world. So if I have those things, I can be like a pretty kick-ass building, but by (laughs) myself, I'm like kind of a mess. Structurally unsound. That's what I am. <laughs> I love that metaphor. <laughs> great. You're a great building, Christopher, you know, from one one perspective here, but I imagine it's shared by many. Thank um, you. <laughs> you. We say so many of the wrong things to people who are sick or hurting or going yeah. through a tough time. And you have a wonderful appendix in uh, Everything Happens for a Reason where you go through some of the things that people say and probably shouldn't say (laughs) and what maybe they should say otherwise. But I'm curious here, just for people who haven't read that, how can we be better in that regard? What are some of the things we definitely should not be saying and maybe some things that might be more useful? Sure. Well, we can try the wellness edition because we had some some fun. The more we can go (laughs) in on wellness, the better. I had a lot of... um, so. I guess the one is, have you tried? And then it's usually describing like someone's like before they'd recently discovered essential oils, but I guess now it might be like an aggressive, a dry brushing routine or whatever the new thing is. It was kale. I was once like one woman once just brought over like literally five massive bags of kale as if to be like, here you go. I guess this will, I guess this will do it. My work here is done. Um, So have you tried is usually not that helpful. And it's almost always directly related to whatever illness they have. So it feels absurdly personal. So I had colon cancer and you could tell people it was like, let's talk about your microbiome. Let's never. (laughs) Let's. I don't want to talk about my gut health with you. So yeah, one, have you tried? 
Uh, two is, I mean, it's just an extension of what everyone tries to do, which is like, oh, you're from Albuquerque. I'm from Albuquerque. But it always goes, you have this kind of whatever. My aunt died from it. Because usually accidentally, the free association game will end badly for the person who is not well. So try not to free associate with whatever their illness makes you think of. I've done it. I've done it. It always ends badly. Um, Things I love, though, I love it when people just say, um, hey, I, I hope it's okay. I heard you're going through a hard time, and I'm just really on your team. And then pause. And then they might say something about how they're doing, or they might not, and just talk about their lives. And both options are good, but at least you gave them the ability to like let a thought take off if they want. And I really love presents. I just love, I love it when people bring me something or be like, hey, can I drop off or whatever? Or can I send you a gift card on this? I'll do it on Wednesday. Bye. Bossy people for the win. Love that. The gut health thing is unbelievable. If you'd like, ever like to discuss good health with me, you tried kom- have you tried kombucha? <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of there's a lot. There's so much I could learn. Yeah. From from you. You have this lovely line where you say, it's easy to imagine letting go when we forget that choices are luxuries, uh, allowing us to maintain our illusion of control. We are only playing at surrender. And I think that's very true. I think people like the idea of surrender in theory, but they struggle with how to actually surrender. Are there ways to actually surrender, you think? Well, because I do hear it's so funny. I I I need I need a break from meeting very, very rich men who've recently discovered so stoicism. <laughs> I need a break. <laughs> Cause they're telling me a we lot. We all need a break from them, but you especially, I would imagine. <laughs> they they've all recently discovered the ability to master emotion and let go. And that's really exciting for them. I'm like standing near their super yacht. I'm like, wow, this is going really well. Does it require anything from you specifically? Um I letting go, I mean, we and this and we see these desires in waves, right? Like different forms of fetishizing minimalism or we want a Marie Kondo, any version of things that, I mean, and and part of it is that we're struggling with a really confused accumulation. And I think our a lot of our confusion about what we're letting go of is because most of us are locked inside of an attention economy in which we are consumers and we're not creators of our own life for the most part. And so I do think that some of these frameworks are actually just sort of exposing how much what we're really struggling with is that we are being eaten alive by our algorithms and our scrolling and the fact that we don't know what feels worth having anymore. Well, because also it, it talk about creating a sense of never enoughness we literally can't get to the bottom of our feeds in, in um, no cure for being human, no cure for being human. You say, I found something along the lines of, I found enoughness without the promise of more. Am I, am I butchering that? You probably no, said it right. more beautifully. No. And, and that's the thing with the feeds. It's like forever promising us, promising us more. You yeah. can't, can't, you can't get to the bottom of your inbox. You can't get to the bottom of a feed. You can't, that's why no. it's an endless scroll. No. Um, yeah. And, and if we're being honest, most of the things really, really, even if we're like, okay, screw that. Let's just get to the stuff that's really worth having this, you know, the people we really, really love, the 
experiences that exhilarate us and challenge us and make us feel like the world opened up in front of us. Like if I list for you every good and possible lovely thing that you wish could be on like the highlights reel at the end of next year, in every one of those cases, there would never be enough. Like I never like wrap my son in a towel and there's nothing like putting a kid in a towel, like, and feel like the warmth of his little body and like see his 200 freckles. I would never think, well, that's it. I guess I don't, I guess we don't have to do that again. (laughs) It's just absurd. I think that's why like that feeling of like never finishing, never getting to the end, there's the kind of toxic, gross version, which is the casino version that we're, we all live in the lockbox of our phones now. But like, even for the lovely things, like our hunger is actually precious about us. It, like, it, it is pointing us somewhere. We just almost always, it's pointing us back to our phones. You're in the process of writing a book or uh, you, yeah. you have a new book coming out, Have a Beautiful, Terrible day but you're also working on a book about self-help is that right oh yeah yes i am i'm working on a history of self-help what's the most interesting thing that stands out to you from what's in that book on the history of self-help right now i'm thinking about the way that self-help is marketed differently to men and women thinking a lot Mm -hmm. about that lately a lot of the masculine literature has like the world is a terrifying place it is full of unethical actors and at times you may need to be the monster you fear like what (laughs) I was like, awful advice. <laughs> and then the other stream of that is like, you are a warrior prince. You have emotions every day. You are not defined by your emotions. Meanwhile, like, I wish they were a little bit more like, hey, buddy, I'm, so- I'm sorry that no one taught you to have a lot of emotions. <laughs> I think I would want that book for men, but that book is not being written. The ones for women are always like, hey, girl boss, you're a badass at managing the infrastructure of your daily life, but they don't say it like that. Um, And then I just really would love a lot less um, chastising people for having a wide range of emotion. And it's really like that on both sides. It's deeply concerned that you will feel negative at some point in the day. They are very worried about it. Mm -hmm. What was the first self-help book? Yeah, people think, well, people think that Benjamin Franklin's journals were Uh, the very first kind of manual. Is that like a prototype of a self-mastering? And he's really a genius, but but one in which there's multiple disciplines. Choose one, diplomacy, writing, that in all areas that a a person could be a well-ordered project. Hmm. I guess that's really the metaphor is project, that every person is a project. Mm-hmm. To shift a little bit, I'm curious what I've I've always wanted to to ask someone who's sad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget when we Twitter DM you described yourself as I hope you you said I hope you keep interviewing medium sad authors. <laughs> I do. I do have to say that when you first reached out, I was like, this has been a terrible mistake. I think the last person you'd interviewed before me had this like amazing push up like record. And I was like, I was like struggling with my one, my one movement toward the earth and away from it using my arms. And I was like, buddy, you've had a scheduling conflict. You do not mean to be talking to me. Who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? <laughs> you, you started the kombucha company, right? Yeah. 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 That's me. That's me. 
Um, no, I was going to say, uh, somebody who is well-versed and well-researched in theology and religion, because I am curious to know, and I'm going to use a paint in very broad strokes here, but I'm curious what you think we need most in society and culture right now that we are missing at least partially because of the retreat of yeah. conventionally organized religion. Like there were yeah. so many things that that brought to us. It did not all good. Some bad, some good. I think that's fair to say, but like yeah. now it is, it is retreating or it's, it's, it's changing shape. I think as we talked about at the beginning, there are other forms of yeah. <laughs> spirituality now, but I'm curious what you think that that brings to a community, to a um, congregation, to a culture that we're now severely lacking. Yeah. Well, I guess three things immediately come to mind. One is when we're inside of a congregation uh, or some kind of bounded community, we are almost always stuck with people we don't like that much and we don't entirely just like agree with. And it's often intergenerational and some people are extremely boring and always complain about the service. Uh, and you're on a committee with them. And that's the whole point is that you can't kick the entire point of a congregation is you can't kick people out. It's basically that it's, you're, it's so hard to get kicked out of the church. <laughs> you could try. Um, that is absolutely necessary in a moment like this. And especially in an election year is you need to be with people who then will cut into your algorithms and into your life and be a big tent. Now it's not because that is that is the bounded practice of a universalizing compassion. It teaches us empathy because then we can't only care about Bob's politics. We actually are really worried that his wife just had hip surgery and somebody's got to bring him something. Like we are disciplined into care for others mm. and we are now so polarized and so divided that like these these communities really teach us a lot about empathy we do not want to cultivate uh, and so anyway one is that uh the other is service which is always related there and i don't even attach to that like the arts if you do um there's a wonderful national congregation study that's run at duke by mark chaves a sociologist and it says like what do you what do people do inside of congregations and almost all of them are connected to service for their community in a very regular way and also a commitment to the arts there are in choirs they're learning things in Sunday school, like it is, they're getting a kind of education that no one would ever provide them for free anywhere else. And so that those are all big community builders. And one of the great worries for the breakdown of institutions is not that the rich won't be fine. Everyone who's fine will be fine. It's all the rest of us. It's all the like older people and kids and the people who need things like those are the people that they need they need a sticky web. And so almost all the rise of these other forms are are quite individualistic. And they're really formed, they're really kind of based on therape therapeutic improvement. And that's great for individuals, but that's rough. It's just rough for the web. One of the things that's evident in your writing and when hearing you talk is that you have a lot of intergenerational friends, which you use that word right there. What have you learned from those intergenerational friendships? Because like, I don't have... A ton of those. And I'm curious, like what, what we're missing out on. There's a lot to be gleaned from that. I think. Yeah, I guess that's, I know it gets us to the, like in different seasons of life, like what are the big lessons and the big lesson that they're all managing is what is worth doing 
in a season of diminishing returns. Mm. And that gets them to a really great place on like vocation. What do you feel called to? Where do your gifts match people's needs? Um, what maybe is some honesty you need to have about your body and what it can and can't do? And what is the good legacy that you're trying to live? Because people have like 25 years to live a legacy on the back end. Like these are not, it's a long, being old is a very long season. So it's, um, it's kind of a wonderful group to have like sort of what you imagine like late night college 2am. Like, what is my life for? You say that to an old person and they're like, they're good to go. <laughs> they have, they have some, they have some they're into it. Yeah. 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 Um, this is something that, again, I'm taking from your book, but you have this great moment where you describe, I think you're talking about the prosperity gospel again, but you're talking about how often religion is basically like, there's two, two ways to think about it. One is God will provide for you in life. That's prosperity gospel and you will be happy. That's one thing that might happen. The second thing that might happen is you may not be happy in life, (laughs) but God, it's part of God's plan. And in the afterlife, you will be happy. And now that I think I'm again, painting in broad strokes here, but I do think less people believe in the afterlife. Now everything is dependent on that first thing, which is yeah. like, we need to be happy now. And I, and I, this isn't necessarily a question more just an observation. I'm curious yeah. what your reaction to it is, but I think the fact that we've lost the promise of an afterlife, some people, for some sure. people we've lost the promise of an afterlife, there's now so much pressure that That's we all be happy in, in the present moment. And I think that is where a lot of the sort of prescriptive happiness and tyranny of positivity comes in. I totally believe that argument. I like it. It's a good one, Clay. I think too, though, I place so little, I mean, thank you, Jesus, eternal life, et cetera. But like, I place so little emphasis on the afterlife or the promise of heaven or Mm. any of that really right now, because I just feel like so much of the, to me, like the dream of what a beautiful life would look like is if I can live with a, like a wider aperture for managing the fact that it often toggles back and forth between life being so beautiful and then life being so hard. And then if I can have more capacity for the highs and lows, then I'm starting to like lit one, live in reality, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> and two, then I won't miss it. Like, I I think maybe just because I was like, I really almost lost everything. I'm so like obsessed with just really not missing it. So I don't, I don't want to miss the lovely and the funny and the world's largest ball of twine, which is in rural Minnesota. Like, I don't want to miss things. And I think if I can learn to how to have more emotional flexibility, then I'm less obsessed with being happy. I'm aware that we can all move into times of difficulty and despair, but I'll know that in that bandwidth, that's why I started saying like, have a beautiful, terrible day. Like if you can't have a lovely day, you can at least learn to kind of move through it and have a beautiful, terrible day. So I don't know. I think there's there's something to be said in, in being a little less worried about being happy. Yeah. And I think the, the idea that the beautiful and the terrible sort of amplify each other, don't, they don't cancel each other out. Yeah. There's like a brightness to what you can see. If you can see the kind of insane, gorgeous tragedy Mm -hmm. of the world around you. Mm -hmm. We are so, I feel like we're so bad at holding the ineffable. 
now. Like we yeah. we have to explain everything away. And um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the people who works for the growth equation, his name's Nate, and he he actually grew up in Canada. And, Thank you. Thank you for your service. And so he brought up this point that like, yeah. especially in the wellness world now, we try to explain everything away. So like, we can't just have a communal gathering where everyone is happy together. We have to explain it as collective effort. Yeah. yeah, Like collective effervescence or like we can't have sex. We have to like align our parasympathetic and sympathetic systems. That is so upsetting and and so true. And it's very reductive. It's very reductive. And I think one of the things that like mystics are we're mystics who write. And I think you do this so well is like you create a container to talk about the ineffable without reducing it. So I guess I'm curious how you think about that, but I'm also curious if you have thoughts on ways we can just better exist with yeah. the mystery and the ineffable and, and talk about it and discuss it, but not try to yeah. explain it all in a way that sort of robs it of its magic or mystery. Yeah. And I, I think this gets to a very American trait. So the like the one that we talked about, which is individualism, and then the other, which is this obsession with the power of the mind. I think the third would be instrumentalization. Mm-hmm. We take every single thing and then we're like, is this a tool? And then we like hit it against something. <laughs> we're we're trying to in every way prove that something is always for something else. It has a benefit. It has a set of concrete advantages. It has an FDA approved set of qualifications um we we want everything to count and i think that it never gets more hilarious than when people take something that's obviously good and this is like a whole field of study so i hope they're all listening and they realize their work is ridiculous but you have to take something lovely like joy for instance and then you go science of joy and then all it is is like trying to prove that it exists and then to create an instrumentalist vision of it it's very american and it also relates to our insecurity Mm. that we don't believe that it can just be good peace hope joy love transcendent truths i mean all of these things are things that we know that are I think we know that they are true because they are buried somewhere inside of us and we're like a tuning fork and it just, when we see it, when we feel it, it rings. So I think we should just like take it down 200 notches on trying to prove what we already know is good. Just enjoy the, I can't believe I was going to say vibrations, but I don't think I can say vibes. Exactly. I know I used an acoustic metaphor and <laughs> I have now become a hypocrite. <laughs> um, we, we think we talk a lot in the show, a lot about identity and sort yeah. of um, complications of identity. And, and I'm just curious as like some of your identity now is tied up with being a cancer survivor. And I'm curious, are there complications to that? I mean, how do you, how yeah. do you, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I hadn't thought about it until um recently because like you never really know when you go through something or when a, a, a something has been a huge part of your life when you graduate from it. Like mm-hmm. when are you not just a when are you when are you sort of a cancer graduate? And <laughs> mine was very complicated because I had chemotherapy and then immunotherapy and then it just but no one had ever tried that drug before. And so I would be like, Am I okay? They're like, eh. Just a lot of like light shrugging, people's voices get high. (laughs) I was never sure. Um, I think not knowing too, though, has, speaking of mystery, has 
become more and more important to me when I think about my identity is we are, we are a lot of different chapters. I mean, and the great privilege is if we get to keep turning pages. So in my life now, I think a lot less about cancer, even though I still get scanned pretty regularly. And to be honest, I feel my worldview most clearly when I'm in the hospital, because I feel like I can see like how hard people are trying, how some people are just doing their jobs and they're bored and they can't care all day. I love them. How some people are like a terrible patient or a wonderful patient and they're just trying to figure out how to make it. I I just feel the, see the tenderness and the tragic comedy of it all in this one little box. And it really has changed the way I see like people at the grocery store, people on the subway. I feel everybody is on this hero's journey. Mm. And that, I, I'll never want to lose that. Mm. Because it taught me something about love and it taught me something about interdependence. And I mm. I don't ever want to go back. Mm. But I also think that we can really get stuck inside of the things that happen to us. And we can't tell if that's what defines us anymore. And mm. I, I've done it with everything. I've done it with being Canadian. It's amazing. Thank you for bringing it up. I've done it with being a professor. Did I bring it up enough? I went to Yale. <laughs> Am I not wearing that sweatshirt? <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> we like want these labels. I think this gets to the like, we don't know how to build our building and we don't know what holds it up. And I mean, f- at this point, at this point, what I really want is... I want to, I want to have, I want to have that lovely sense of being like, and I'm going to say like beloved, like just worth loving through and through. I want to have a beautiful thing I'm trying for. That's really hard and a little bit scares me. I would really like to be less invested in any of the labels. I mean, I guess like, cause cancer taught me how to really try to, to need to try to live and also be willing even though I wasn't willing to let it go because mm. at that moment in which you're wheeled into surgery like you there's there's moments in which you genuinely know that you have no more agency you have played every card and it is good to learn to try and it is good to learn to stop trying both of those things I did not know mm. Mm. now I just need to learn to live with what I can't change and that is a lesson that is taking me longer to learn. Okay, Kate Bowler, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Kate, so much for coming on and sharing that with me and with our listeners. I like to try to give a brief summary of each episode so that you guys can walk away with a little bit of a, almost like an index card to think about key takeaways. So there's six points for me on this one. I mean, there were more than six important things in that conversation, but the six that... I would put on my index card. One is just understand how good vibes only and a lot of our motivational and meritocratic language is rooted in the prosperity gospel and how it creates this idea that you have to earn your life or that if you're in pain or unhappy, you somehow deserve it. Obviously, that's not true. And it's okay if you work hard to be better or improve, but as much as you can, try to unhook that improvement from your inherent worth or lovability. Two, I loved Kate's metaphor of thinking of ourselves as buildings and that we are only as structurally sound as our scaffolding and that scaffolding is the people around us who love us and help us. Three, that it's good to learn to try 
but it's also good to learn to stop trying. It's okay to care about health, wealth, and victory, but they aren't promised to us, no matter how rigorous our systems or our discipline. And sometimes that means accepting the fact that we really aren't all that in control. Four, we often orient ourselves towards happiness, but we'd probably be better off orienting ourselves towards emotional flexibility, that it's more important to be able to navigate or move through a terrible day than it is to have a lovely day every day. Five, don't turn everything into an instrument, joy, peace, happiness. We don't need to understand or unpack the causes and benefits behind those things. We can just experience and appreciate and enjoy them. And six, lastly, this very beautiful quote from Kate, we are many different chapters and we are lucky if we get to keep turning pages. The good news is that Kate shares this wisdom generously on her podcast and in her books in her new book, Have a Beautiful, Terrible Day. So please go seek out her work. I promise you that it has made my life much richer. I hope that this podcast, either this episode or just farewell, generally, if you've been listening to it, has made your lives richer. If you want to support the show, the best way you can do that is by subscribing, by reviewing, by sharing it. If you want to get in touch with me directly, maybe you have a happy email to send. Maybe you have an angry email to send. I'm glad for either of them. You can email me at clay.growtheq at gmail.com, or you can call our show voicemail, 646-893-9503. If you leave a message with a question, it might be answered by Steve, Brad, and myself on our next roundtable. Speaking of Steve and Brad, thank you to the rest of the Growth Equation family, Steve Magnus, Brad Stalber, Chris Douglas, Nate Meckler, and John Summerford. And thank you to you for listening. We will be back on Monday with another Coach Up. Until then, have a great day, and as always, farewell. Farewell.